Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. First of all, congratulations on uh, on the film and on your Best Actor Award today from the LA Film Critics. So this is based actually on a novel that's been out of print for quite a while. So I, I'm kind of curious, how did you how did you find the book? Well, I had always. <laughs> I had always wanted to tell Merle Haggard's life story. Merle, in my estimation, is a poet laureate of country music. Spent some time with Merle, traveled with him a little bit, uh, logged some hours on the Super Chief, his bus, really got to know him. But I didn't get time to know his six ex-wives. And it was a real rights issue. They were all very entangled. So I turned to the novel, which was out of print, and the novel, through Bad Blade, the character that Jeff portrays, allowed me to tell Merle Haggard's life story, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson's all at once. <laughs> and at what point did you become involved in the project? Uh, well, I originally uh, passed on the project because um, although I, I enjoyed the, uh, the screenplay, it, it, there was no music attached to it, and that was such a, a you know, big part of the, uh, of the movie. Uh, and so it took me a while, uh, actually about a year after I initially read it, I ran across my old buddy T-Bone Burnett, and he mentioned that, you know, to read the script, uh, Crazy, I said, oh, yeah, kind of good. You know, and he said, well, what do you think? Are you going to do it? And I said, why, are you interested? Are you going to do it? And he said, I'll do it if you do it. And then, then this is all kind of fell into play. Jeff is notoriously difficult to bring to the party. He's the most selective actor, I'm told, in Los Angeles. It took the, uh, the, the Coen brothers a year to get him attached to the Big Lebowski. That's why we could come back. <laughs> well, and um, in terms of the music, you know, it's so integral to the performance and, and the film. And I wonder if you guys can just talk a little bit about um, how you worked um, to, um, you know, to help create the music and also to be inspired by the music. I literally cut my teeth listening to this kind of music. I grew up in you know, Virginia, and my father would take me around in his backpack to bluegrass festivals before they became they were good. And I, as I got out of diapers and actually started enjoying music, I really was drawn to these type of men and women who who really wrote about their life experiences. So I was very steeped in this type of uh, music. And I knew that T-Bone Burnett was peerless in what he does, essentially, as uh, a chronicler of American roots music. And one of the reasons that we didn't have the music prior to Jeff's involvement was because, well, that's kind of cart before the horse. It takes a lot of money to do that. So you have, it's a catch-22. You have to get actors attached before you get the money to do the music to get the actor. So it was very difficult. 
But I uh, was very specific in what I wanted and had given Jeff and T-Bone uh, a CD filled with songs that inspired me, that inspired the piece at Blake. And we really kind of created an alternate universe from that point on. He, uh, there's a lot of there's a, a blues, very heavy blues inflection in Bad's world. And he grew up in Southeast Texas, so he would have been influenced by the Delta blues men of the 20s and 30s and 40s. And the only time that we see Bad Blake listening to music at all is when he's in his suburban parked outside of the bar waiting for Maggie's character to come. And what is he listening to? He's listening to a Lightning Hopkins blues number. So it's, re it's not just traditional country, but it's country blues. One of the things that T-Bone did for me that I really appreciated was he made a timeline of all the music that Dad might have listened to when he was growing up. And uh, it was pretty eclectic. You know, it had, you know, Hank Williams and Waylon and Christopherson and all those guys, but it also had Dylan uh, in there and, and uh, Leonard Cohen. And I remember asking Bone, uh, I said, do you think you'd listen to some Captain Beefheart? And Bone said, sure, sure. And, you know, Ornette Coleman and all these guys. T-Bone, um, it's funny, the music really started for me for this, with this movie uh, 30 years ago in the movie, uh, the movie Heaven's Gate, where uh, Christopherson, who was the star of that film, brought all of his musical buddies along uh, to play small parts in that movie, and T-Bone and Stephen Bruton, the fellow who the movie's uh, dedicated to, were all part of that. Uh, and strangely enough, the, our production designer, who did such an amazing job with the uh, production design here, Valdemar Kalinowski, was an actor, and he had no idea at the time that he wanted to, you know, that he was going to be this world-class production designer. But um, we all met on that movie, and uh, we, you know, that was six months of jamming every night after work, you know, and, and uh, we had just a wonderful, a wonderful time. And, uh, and so that, uh, that friendship uh, continued all those years uh, between that one and this one. And T-Bone would come up with really interesting uh, uh, notions about the music. Uh, I remember one of them that was really uh, great. The book and the movie could have interpreted this kind of battle between old country and new country. You know? And I remember uh, T-Bone saying, I want all the music in the movie to be good. You know? And that this battle, you know, between the good and bad country was really mostly Bad's mind. You know that that uh, Tommy, it was you know was good. It was good music, you know, and uh, and that this you know any kind of um, interpretation of the value of that movie was you know basically a chip on Bad's shoulder, which I was kind of an interesting idea. Um. Unfortunately, Maggie Gyllenhaal wasn't able to be here tonight because of a, a personal matter, but um, the, the chemistry between the two of you is really so central to, to this film and really um, essential to, to it working so well. And I wonder, was that, was that there from the beginning or did that evolve during rehearsals or, or shooting? Yeah, it was immediate, I think. Maggie's such a fearless actress and she's courageous. She always wants to discover and push and listen and, and try things uh, in numerous different ways. And I recall the first time we had very, very little rehearsal, but I do recall that when I saw them in rehearsal, I thought to myself, God, this really is going to work. Because they're fantastic, both fantastic, and they just, 
had a, a really immediate connection. And it, I think, transcended everything that I could have hoped in. I've been kind of tracking Maggie's work, you know, for, for years with the secretary and uh, uh, Sherry Baby. You know, I remember running into her in a premiere of, uh, what was the name of the movie? Uh, Mona Lisa's Smile. Mona Lisa's Smile that my, um, my nephew, Jordan Bridges, was in. And I saw her there and I went up to her and I said, we're going to be working together like that. You know, I'm so glad it came out. Uh, and we approached the work in a very similar way. You know, you only got, like in this, in this movie, I think it was somewhere between you know, 20 and 30 days, but you know, we, we had to do what we had to do. And there's some actors who approach it uh, in a way where they only want you to call them, you know, by the character's name, and uh, and they're very um, very alive and and and, uh, and you know wonderful to play with between action and cut. But otherwise, they really rather not uh, get to know you too much. They rather you know know you only as a character. And I've had great, very successful uh, you know work experiences that way. I work in a completely different way. Uh, Maggie shares this way where we, where we really get to, you try to get to know the, the person that you're, you're playing with. And um, the hope is that you can bring some of that, uh, you know, that knowledge and that, uh, uh, basically it's love, love and trust and all that up to the screen. And you've only got a certain amount of time to do that, so you gotta you know, kind of be quick about it. And Maggie is very game and very open and uh, just got one of my favorite uh, actors to work with. She was just amazing to work with. She came up with a, a wonderful line. And Scott was so great, you know, with having this pressure of uh, only having a few days to do what you have to do. Some directors, not only first time directors, but all directors, you know, there's a, how they react to that pressure. Often it's like, um, you know, they don't want any of your ideas and then you kind of get the feeling, even if they're uh, kind of like what you're doing right now, you're kind of going, yeah, you know, like it's kind of a play, I get you, we've got a time to go, you know, instead, I'm not putting, I'm not, you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but it's that same kind of thing, like, yeah, tell me your ideas so we can get, yeah, I'll go it, I'll get all this. But Scott had this feeling that he had all the time in the world and he really wanted to know everything he was thinking. And so that kind of uh, atmosphere that a director creates like that allowed uh, you know, the actors to you know, come up with wonderful ideas. One of my favorite ideas that Maggie came up with was in that last scene there. She, it kind of was rubbish. She felt bad about taking money from bad and it just didn't feel right. And she came up with this great line for me, which was, that's not money. I get emotional and just saying that, you know, so it's such a beautiful line. But that, and that kind of thing comes up when you, you get a director like this guy who just is interested, you know, in all those feelings and, and things that might come up. I'll stop nodding. Uh, one, one. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting choice to nod. <laughs> Um, another amazing actor, another amazing actor we see in this film is, of course, Robert Duvall, and um, there's this echo of tender mercies um, in in this story. And I, I, I wonder, um, you know, were there, you know, was that an influence, and were there other influences that um, either of you were uh, drawing from in 
trying to create that? Yeah, uh, Mr. Duvall is a very close friend of mine and mentor. We've uh, now collaborated four times together, three times as actors, and it's the first time that I've directed him. And I love that movie, and Horton Foote, who wrote the screenplay for that, was a major inspiration for me. I find him to be one of, he was, I think, one of America's finest writers. And um, could chronicle American families as well as Chekhov, or, or family in general, or, or Eugene O'Neill. And um, so I always aspired to be a little bit of Robert Duvall, a little bit of Horton Foote. So I chose to immerse it. No, okay. But I, I really did love that film, and it, it's, it is very different than this. But I thought it was important to pay homage to that. The movie came out 27 years ago. But uh, Mr. Duvall's um, DNA is all over this movie. I loved working with Bob. He was so great. He loved to uh, <laughs> improvise, you know. Our first scene together was that coming out of the, the rehab place, you know. And, uh, I really enjoyed that because there was a lot of you know, joy coming from both characters. It was a, a great connection and, and uh, it, it kind of informed the rest of our relationship through the rest of the thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I loved in that bar scene where he said, you know, this old uh, 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 Jesus, you know, that whole thing. That was all you just dumping the time. <laughs> I love that. Uh, as far as role models, you know, we go back to Heaven's Gate, and you've got uh, Christofferson was certainly a, a role model. One of the first uh, directions that Scott gave me was that if Bad was a real character, uh, he would be the fifth Highwayman. Do you guys know who the Highwaymen are, right? Johnny Cash and Waylon, Willie, and Chris, right? And so that was, you know, kind of a general. You know, those, all those four guys were role models, but the real role model for me was Stephen Bruton, who. Uh, just give you a little history of Stephen. Um, I don't know if you folks know uh, the album, the, uh, the Pilgrim, you know, the Christofferson's new album. You, I don't know if you've heard that. If you haven't, you might want to check it out. It's really a wonderful, uh, wonderful album. And it's basically just Chris and Stephen, Stephen playing on guitar and, and harmonizing with them. And they've been pals, you know, forever. And, and Stephen's been, uh, you know, backing him up. And he was uh, T-Bone's friend. Um, you know, the childhood friends. Stephen's uh, father owned a, a music store and really taught Bone uh, and, and Stephen all about music from Ornette Coleman and, you know, all kinds of, you know, jazz, classical music. And uh, Stephen became uh, T-Bone's guitar teacher and uh, his dear friend. And he was with me every step of the way, you know, in the beginning, you know, for about maybe a month before we actually started shooting, uh, he formed uh, a band for me that I could you know, play with and practice that. And then uh, he was encouraged by me and Scott to uh, add you know, any kind of um, uh, input that he would have that, you know, about uh, what this life was like because it, his life paralleled uh, Bad's for, you know, the, you know, in an amazing way. I mean, he had you know, challenges with the booze and the other substances, you know, and uh, he would drive himself from, you know, gig to gig, you know, toting his guitar, that the whole sparkless bottle thing, you know, in the beginning, that's definitely Stephen, you know. Yeah, that's what he would say. He said, I don't stop, I don't pull that, carry a sparkless bottle, you know. <laughs> so things like that, you know. So my main role model was uh, Stephen. And it was handy because he was there every day. Uh, questions from the audience? 
Colin Farrell as a singer. The question, just uh, to repeat for everybody, was uh, what, what led to the casting of Colin Farrell as a, a, a country artist? Yes, well, country music originates from the Scotch-Irish heritage. And I imagine that Colin had spent a little bit of time in a pub at some point. <laughs> He looks like a movie star, but he's really a character actor. And I felt like I needed someone who had the dark charisma that Colin had, that you could see as being a, a protege to someone like Bad Blake, but also someone who's charming enough and, and handsome enough to, to be what uh, a contemporary country star would need to be a major star. And Colin is hes a very, very talented guy, and I felt that he really would bring something that would be interesting and unique. because he would be the last person that you would think to play that role, which is what I wanted. And uh, he sang beautifully. Something else that was wonderful about Colin, he brought to the party um, Ryan Bingham, you know, the guy who uh, who sings that last song, who wrote it, The Weary Kind, uh, and also plays the part of Tony, the guy who knocks on my door and asks me to rehearse with him and, and his band, uh, The Dead Horses, are the band at the bowling alley. And Colin saw them playing at a dive in L.A., a Cantor's Deli, <laughs> and brought him to Scott's attention. And uh, so we're thankful for Colin for that. And just working with him, you know, he flew in for about no four, four or five days is all he worked. I can't remember, but you know, talk about this thing we're talking about about getting it on quick because we don't have too much time. So to develop all of that uh, that relationship, that past relationship, to do it so quickly, you've got to be up for it and, and uh, you know, oh, you know, an old better. He sure, God, he was wonderful to work with and the same with him. Uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on any similarities or inspiration you drew from another great film I saw you, Jeff, in uh, Mass and Anonymous, um, and if there was any, if you learned anything from working with um, with Dylan on that. Yeah, absolutely. He was a role model for me. I, I watched, uh, and maybe I watched it with you, Scott, I think. And I can't think of, think of this documentary's name, but it's a wonderful documentary, I think, shot by Penmaker, you know. Uh, and it's Dylan, you know, going electric at, at the, New, uh, the Newport Jazz Festival. And it's, it's wonderful, because it's not only the 65, which is the year he, you know, sang Maggie's Farm Electric, that was so amazing. But it was. It starts at 63, so you see him make that progression of you know, being this folk singer and you know becoming you know electrified Bob. And gosh, I, I love working with him in that. He, he's a real hero of mine. You know, and that was uh, that was wonderful. But just to watch uh, to watch him even at that young age. You know the you know the film I'm talking yeah. about. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's thing. It's called the other side. Yeah. Of the that's it. That's it. Gosh. Oh, and that performance, yeah. Maggie's Farm. My God. So wonderful, and the confidence in which he does it—you know—was was really inspiring. Pleasure to, uh, to see you, Mr. Bridges. I have a question about, uh, let's say, a week before the first day of shooting. How have you prepared physically and mentally to enter this role? Because I think I see many movies of yours where you're really good at that downward spiral. <laughs> It's not so much the actual act of it, but it's those, those moments of just quite, you know, underlying, mm -hmm. simmering that's going on. 
So a, a question about preparation for uh, physically and emotionally for the role. Uh, there's a lot of aspects to that question. Um, one is uh, an aspect that I think, uh, I don't leave it, I don't say most artists, I know, I'll just talk about myself personally, just the fear and anxiety, you know. And I, that seems to be kind of the peak with me, uh, with things I really care about. And this one I certainly cared about, and it was such a wonderful opportunity, kind of a dream come true for me, you know, to play with my, my dear friends and make this music and, you know, this whole part of me. It was really a wonderful opportunity, and I really didn't want to drop that ball, you know, and that was, that's frightening when you, when you, you, when you get in that position. For me it is, anyway. And uh, so I was very, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, and I dealt with that by, uh, you know, working at it. That's the thing that kind of scratches that itch, I find, if you, when you're, when you're anxious about it. Kind of work at it, try to, you know, so I worked with, you know, Stephen. Um, I, I submitted a bunch of songs that didn't, actually didn't make the movie, but they really served uh, in helping my preparation just to you know get get into playing music with a band and that kind of thing so that that really helped and um, uh, and then physically uh, I think about you know what I ingest for each role you know whether it be uh, not you know you know fasting I remember Jake doing a movie with Jane Fonda she turned me on to something called Beeler's Soup have you guys ever heard of that squash green beans and parsley, and then you put on the garlic. Gorgonzola? No, not no, no, very <laughs> no. We give each other uh, uh, words that have to be said during the interview. <laughs> 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 One of them is Gorgonzola. <laughs> that, that, that concoction, she drank that concoction for 30 days on this movie I did with her, and, she, and it's a diuretic, so she's you know, lost all this weight very quickly, and it's a, actually a wonderful soup. You, you, it's, you're never hungry on it, you lose a lot of weight. So I've used that in, in the cages. But in this, uh, in this instance, I just took my governor off and ate all the ice cream I wanted to, and drank as much as I wanted to. I uh, didn't want to be drunk uh, while I was working. I've made that mistake early in my career. That doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't help anything. <laughs> but I could be a little hungover. That was okay. I could uh, eat a lot of salt, you know. Uh, salt makes you puffy. So, I, you know, that was in my diet. Uh, coffee, sometimes I used in varying degrees. You know, at lunch, you know, whether you eat or not. All those things, you know, uh, uh, there, there's an aspect to that that, that, that I work with. Do you have any and, time you do this? Uh, uh, yes, it's like the, it's life, you know. It's my it's, so it's the gamut of emotions. I feel you know, joy and sorrow and anxiety and all those things. But you know, talking about the, the fear stuff because that's is such a um, a presence uh, in the whole process and how you dance with that. You know, you never really get rid of it, but how you uh, work with that. And uh, so that fear kind of is, you know, it, it goes along for the whole way. And then when the moment happens, when it's now's the time, it just kind of drops, and you just you think you're the guy. You know, that's kind of what, what it feels like to me, especially with Bad. One of my own directions to myself was that when he gets up on the stage, 
that's his throne, you know. He may be awkward and feel off when he's, you know, not on the stage, but he could be up on the stage, he could be drunk as he wants, he could be however he wants, but that's that's home turf, you know. So that was kind of my own you know, direction to myself. In terms of Jeff's physicality, when I finally got the call that Jeff wanted me to come up to where he lived in California to meet with him. And when I met Jeff, he looks much like he did, does now, which is very tall and big and fit and handsome. And I said, Jeff, these guys don't look like that. <laughs> so, you know, would it be okay if you gained 25 pounds for this? <clears throat> Knowing that I was going to shoot Jeff in, in all states of disrepair and shoot all of him, as you saw. And Jeff, of course, gives a vanity-free performance, never questions it, and, and I had to beg him to keep his underwear on. <laughs> that was it. We have time for a couple more questions. Hi, I just uh, wanted to take the opportunity to say, like Mr. Bridges, how a great a career I think that you've had. I mean, it's, it's, it's so many. Sort of scanning your filmography earlier, reminding myself, like you know, Fat City, Last American Hero, like The Contender, all this. You know, it, 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 and it seems to me like you're one of those actors who, who whatever you're in, you feel totally authentic to me. And it, it uh, uh, Robert Duvall is another one, you know. And then it's and also like with this film in particular, I, I really liked that it didn't. I mean, I'm not familiar with the book, uh, that it that it didn't work out in more conventional ways. Like I was thinking, well, is he going to die? Is, is, is his son going to show up? And at the end of it, I'm really glad that, you know, that it felt much truer, mm. much truer this way. So uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. It was really great. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you got a really good performance out of the kid who played uh, Buddy, and I was just wondering, how you got that out of a four-year-old, because he was great. Okay, yeah, um, oh, a question about the, uh, the the child in the film and, and directing a, a four-year-old to a really great performance like that. Yeah, there are many non-actors in the film. He's one of them. And I saw kids in California, New Mexico, and Arizona, Texas, and they all came in and were also programmed. And they're just babies, so mom and dad have really worked with them to get these lines right. But when I would give them a note, adjustment, they really couldn't take it, and they would just continue to do it that way. And I really thought, oh no, this, this could be really bad. So one of our producers found this little boy in a restaurant. And <laughs> oh, I felt people at gas stations, a man pushing up a, a food cart in the, in the plaza, place Jesus. And uh, Ryan, being a bit never acted before, as Mr. Duvall says in, in The Apostle and his other films, he said that non-actors don't have bad habits, so he likes to use them. So I used numerous of those. But in, in this case, um, he came in to read for me before I introduced him to Jeff and Maggie, and he was just so free and so alive, and he listened, and he could just turn on a dime. And uh, the only issue we really had with him, with him was he always wanted to hit the boom. Was always <laughs> but he was really, really remarkable, and I hope he doesn't act again, because he's just so... <laughs> We have time for one more question. 
if we have one. Um, yeah, back there. Um, for Jack, how much time in preparation did you require for performing all that music? Okay, how much time and preparation did it take to uh, perform the music in the film? Yeah, I'm not really sure. What do you think, Scott? About a month before? Yeah, a little bit longer because we didn't actually have all, all money one time. Yeah. So, and the music kind of came in, in slow yes. waves. You know? So probably six months out, we really started trying to com compose and compile music and, and bring some in from all different areas. And, and Jeff would play with other bands and just kind of get him up on his feet as a performer. But then really, really hardcore about a month. But Jeff is also a terrific singer and songwriter, which is one of the reasons that I wrote the role for him, among many. And, um, and I recall in rehearsal, he always would rehearse in jeans and a t-shirt and tennis shoes or something. But in Santa Fe, just before we started shooting, I had Jeff put on his, his costume. And, he, and I recall coming in and, and my cinematographer had a little flip camera. And we were, we were uh, rehearsing with Jeff and, and he put the hat on and shirt and pants with a crease and buckle and strapped on that big Gretsch guitar. And I said, wow, it's like I'm looking at Waylon Jennings. I knew at that point, boy, he was going to give a performance of a lifetime, and he does. All right, well, uh, thank you both so much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.